Well, let's bow together in a word of prayer as we open God's word together in our worship. Oh, Father, we do come to your word to worship you. We want to hear your voice. We want to see your son portrayed. We want to worship. And so I ask that as we open your holy, inspired, and inerrant word, that you would please cause our hearts to see what you want us to see. You'd help our minds to learn what we need to learn. And may you help our hearts to adore what we see of you and of your son. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, as I just said, we gather here to worship each and every week. We lift up our voices in song and the regular routine of that can, uh, we can almost forget that wonderful reality that uh, hundreds of voices joining together to be able to sing out the praises of the Lord. And as we do so, we, we realize the power of the voices of the people of God declaring the praises of the Lord himself. And so as, and as we sing, our, our hearts join in joy and delight, do they not? Delight in who our God is, and we want to sing out more and sing out louder and say, yes, that's our God. That's who we praise. And so we corporately lift up each and every one of our individual voices to join together as one to exalt our Savior. And we delight in the fact that there is no one else like him, that there is no one else deserving of that worship and of that praise. No one else satisfies our hearts except him alone. He deserves the worship of all the nations, of every single creature that's ever existed, which is why we sang all creatures of our God and King. Lift up your voices. Let him sing. And so we praise him. We praise him each and every week, and we individually seek to praise him each and every day. But it's in the context of that, of just, of our voices, the echo of our voices dying out, of us just praising our Savior, that we are stopped in our tracks. When we read in our passage this morning of a crowd crying out a different chorus, a crowd crying out, let him be crucified. Crying out, we have no king but Caesar. With them shouting, let his blood be on us and our children. With them crying at the top of their lungs, crucify, crucify him. It is jarring for us and rightly so. For, for us who have been redeemed by Christ and delight to sing his praises, to be so stopped when we hear of not his praises, but his condemnation. The crowds shouted for Jesus, who is God's son, heaven sent, to be executed like a vile criminal. And as we hear these, the words of crucify, crucify, we, we almost want to plug our ears. We, almost, we want to turn away. We don't want to hear that. That's not right. 
We don't want to see our beloved Savior treated so savagely. But friends, we must. We must hear those voices this morning. We must let them ring in our ears and we must peer into this event of the cross and the moments that led up to it. As I've said in prior weeks, we are just a few weeks away from Easter, Good Friday, Easter, five weeks after today. Too often, Easter creeps up unnoticed and we go, oh, here's Easter. But this year, as we work our way through the exposition of Luke, we are preparing our hearts and, and realizing the weight of what Christ did there upon the cross and the magnificent glory that came afterward through the resurrection. Each week we are taking a march closer to Good Friday and to Easter. And today we are looking at Luke chapter 23 verses 13 through 15. And so if you're not there already, I invite you to open your personal copy of God's Word and turn or tap to Luke chapter 23 verses 13 through 25. Last, the last few weeks, we've been seeing Jesus stand on trial. And there are two pieces of this trial. First is the Jewish trial, and second is the Roman trial. First is the religious trial, and second is the civil trial. And both of them had three phases of their trials. We've already seen the first three of the Jewish trials after the Jewish leadership tried Jesus and they heard him say with his own mouth that he was the Christ, he was the Son of Man, he was the Son of God. They tore their robes and they said, we've heard enough, this man is worthy of death because he had spoken blasphemy. And then, as we saw last week, they then took their criminal that they had arrested and, and brought him before Pilate, the Roman governor. They needed to take him to Pilate because they weren't allowed to put anyone, any criminals to death themselves. They weren't allowed to uh, take out capital punishment on anyone, and so they needed the Romans to do that. And so they needed to convince Pilate that this man, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was worthy of death. But as we saw last week, so far their attempts hadn't worked. We saw the first two phases of the Roman trial last week. First was before Pilate, and then when uh, they didn't like the result there, uh, Pilate rather sent him off to Herod, King Herod, who was ruler over Galilee and Perea, and he was in Jerusalem at the time, and so he said, oh, maybe Herod can help us out here, and so Pilate sends him over to Herod. Herod didn't really take the trial seriously. He first saw it as an opportunity for a magic show, and go, ooh, good, I've been waiting for Jesus to come. I've been, wanting, I've been hearing about all these signs and wonders he does. Maybe he can perform for me. Of course, Jesus didn't play into that, didn't perform anything amazing. He just stood there quietly receiving this, being part of the sham trial. And so then Herod began to lead his soldiers in mockery and ridicule of Jesus. Putting on a flashy robe, he then sent him back to Pilate. And this is where our passage picks up today, where Herod has just sent Jesus back to Pilate. And so follow along as I read, beginning in verse 13. It says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any 
of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. Therefore, I will punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May the Lord bless it upon all our hearts this morning. As I said earlier, in this passage, things turn for the worst for Jesus. If you were reading this for the first time, you might hope there's some way that Jesus could, his innocence could break through, that the truth would be known, that truth would be enacted upon. But here we see that against all reason, Jesus is sentenced to death. It pains us to hear of the hatred that he received, the cries that were made against him, the way he was mistreated. And yet, we're torn, aren't we? We need him to be crucified. We need him to be betrayed. We need him to be executed for our own salvation. And so we see that more than ever, we need Christ. We need Christ crucified and risen again. Now in this passage, we meet several different characters, characters that we've seen before, but here they all kind of come together and work together within this narrative. And these different characters are a part of these different strands that are going on within this piece of the narrative. And I believe that the story revealed around each one of these characters has a lesson for us to learn. And so as we look at this shameful sentencing of Jesus this morning, we will see that each character teaches us a lesson about our need for Christ. Each character in this narrative teaches us a lesson about our need for Christ. And of course, the central character of this narrative, as really the central character of the Bible, is Jesus. And so we're going to start with him. And so let's begin with the first character, that is Jesus Christ. And with Jesus, we learn that Jesus, our Savior, is sinless. Our Savior is sinless. We looked at this last week, and we're going to touch on it again because the, the text touches on it again. But we see, beginning in verse 13, that Pilate, after he's received the prisoner, Jesus, back from Herod, he calls together the Jewish groups of people. Notice who's included in verse 13. Calls together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. 
I believe Luke wants us to see that this was not just a meeting of the leadership. This was not just a segment of the Jewish people. This was meant to be a representative whole of the Jewish nation. Pilate calls together all aspects of Jewish society are represented here. And Pilate here then gives his official verdict. Look at verse 14. He said and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. These verses read somewhat like an official Roman verdict. He is the decision maker in this region of the world. He has to then uh, make a determination. And here he is essentially rolling out his official verdict. He's given the Jews a clear explanation of his decision. You'll notice, first of all, he reviews the charges. Verse 14, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. This is exactly what was uh, said back up in verse 2, where they said, this man has been misleading our nation. But next, he reviews his process. Well, what did he do with such charges? He goes on in verse 14, and after examining him before you, he says, he says, listen, I, I examined him in front of you. You heard, you saw, you saw how I examined him. Now, you would read the account of Luke and go, Luke, you know, it didn't seem like Pilate really examined him very long. He asked him one question um, up in verse 3. That doesn't seem like an extensive examination. Well, I think if we pair together, uh, I think all the gospel narratives are summarizing at this point, but Luke especially is, is summarizing for space and, uh, and so he's just given a summary of what has happened. And so we can assume that more went on. And we, in fact, we go to the Gospel of John, and there's a much more conversation that went on between Jesus and Pilate. And so he did an extensive examination. And then he reviews, end of verse 14, the preliminary assessment. And after examining him before you, behold, pay attention, listen up, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And he then presents some supporting evidence. Listen, it wasn't just me that came to this conclusion. Look at what he says in 15. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. And so here, Pilate tries to lay out his case. He says, folks, listen, you came with this charge. I examined him. I looked into it, and I could find nothing deserving of death. And neither did Herod either. So you got two leaders who are dealing with these things all the time, and we don't hear or see anything that is worthy of what you are saying. And so here in the mouth of a Gentile ruler, we are faced with the truth again that Jesus was indeed an innocent victim. He had done nothing wrong. And as we looked at last week, he was even more pure, more holy, more innocent than even Pilate understood. Pilate was simply looking in terms of Roman law. But the scriptures are clear, as we looked at last week, that according to God's standard, God's eye, they can see all into every human part, heart, every action, every thought. Jesus was declared to be innocent without sin. There was never a wrong thought, never a false motive And so Jesus was not just innocent of the charges brought to him by the Jews, but he was completely sinless. Unlike you and I, 
that are born into sin. We have inherited the corruption from our father, Adam. We are born into this prison of sin. Jesus was not. And he remained pure and holy and sinless throughout his life. In the midst of the temptation he faced, in the midst of the opportunities to to look out for himself and to sin against the law of God, he never took that option. He was totally and completely without sin, and he perfectly obeyed the law of God. All of the laws that were here for the Jewish people to follow, he obeyed. And he did it not just in the outward form of it, but every single act of obedience was out of pure and undefiled devotion to his father. He always loved his father. He was the one who loved his father with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, all of the time. We can't even understand that and fathom that. We just try and seek and the Spirit's help to attain that. But we have our, the world of flesh and devil that pulls us down, right? But Jesus didn't have those restraints of a sin nature. And so he was able to not only obey in the letter, but obey in the spirit all of the time. And so Jesus not only should, should not have had any charges of wrongdoing brought against him, but he should have been awarded as the most righteous person, right? He should have been acknowledged and recognized as the, the most holy, the most righteous person in Israel. But that wasn't the case. It wasn't God's will that he would be awarded here before the cross. And so we see that even in this mouth of this Gentile ruler, the innocence of Jesus, we are reminded again that it is Jesus' sinlessness that qualifies him to be our Savior. Only the spotless Lamb of God could take away our sin. Only he is our only hope. As we read through this account, and it's going to get worse as we go in the weeks ahead, as we go towards the cross... We cringe. We cringe at the injustice that an innocent one suffers. And yet, it is in the midst of Jesus experiencing that injustice, being the victim of that injustice, that we see our only hope of forgiveness. Believer, your forgiveness could come no other way but through Jesus. Christ is all that you need. Now, even though that Pilate found Jesus to be innocent, look at what he chooses to do in verse 16. He says, I will therefore punish and release him. He still says he's going to punish and then release him. As one author has said, this seems to be the first leak in Pilate's boat. He's beginning to concede something to the Jews. Up to this point, he was holding firm, saying this man's innocent. He's not deserving of any sort of punishment. But here he concedes at some level. And he thinks that by inflicting some physical punishment on Jesus, he can placate the Jews and therefore avoid this whole riot and mob. The word for punish here is a word used elsewhere in Scripture as discipline. Which is why the King James, the New King James, translated as chastise, and yet we know uh, from the other Gospels that what was talking, he was talking about here is a, is a whipping or a flogging of some sort. And so it carries the idea of, of 
punishing him to, to teach a lesson, whipping him to teach a lesson. This probably wasn't the full flogging that would take, a, take place immediately before a crucifixion. He was probably uh, advocating a, one of the lighter floggings that they would do just to kind of teach Jesus a lesson. But as we see, they, that offer did nothing to, to satisfy the Jews, did it? It didn't satisfy their murderous craving. And so it's now to the Jews that we turn. So we've first seen Jesus, our Savior, is sinless. But let's now turn to the Jews and learn the lesson that unbelief is irrational. From the Jews, we learn that unbelief is irrational in this text. Verses 18 through 23. Now, before we tackle... Verse 18, I need to quickly address verse 17, which some of your Bibles have and some of your Bibles don't. For those of us using the English Standard Version, the NIV, or the CSB, that verse is not represented in our text and probably represented in a footnote right after uh, the end of verse 16 or somewhere thereabouts. For those of you with the King James Version or the New King James, it's presented in the text as a normal verse. I think it's in parentheses, but it's, it's, it's presented as a normal part of the, uh, of the text. And then for those with the NASB or the LSB, the verse is in the text, but there's brackets around it. So, knowing that we have a diversity of translations here, I just want to briefly address this. The reason it is that way is because in most of the early manuscripts, so you'll you rewind the clock and try to get back to when these were the, the manuscripts of the Bible were originally written. And when you go back to the most ancient ones, verse 17 is not included in the text. And sometimes in some of the manuscripts, it's actually placed after verse 19. So even that, the fact that it's in different places or not there tells us that this was probably an addition added later in. And so that's what is regarded today by, by all, just about all scholars that I've found is to see that this was a verse that was not in the original text of Luke. A scribe borrowed it from Matthew or Mark to try to explain what was going on and inserted it here into Luke. It's a harmless addition, uh, but it is an addition nonetheless. And that is why uh, many translations either put it in brackets or put it into a footnote. So we're going to pick up in verse 18, where it describes the response of the Jews to Pilate's verdict. And so look at verse 18 with me. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Notice that it says, they all cried out together. Luke goes out of his way to make sure that we see that the Jews there in condemning Jesus uh, did it all together. There was unity in their desire to see Jesus go to the cross. In addition to that, Luke emphasizes in this passage the voices of the crowd. Notice verse 18, we just said, they all cried out. And then look at verse 21. They kept shouting. Another way to describe their voices. And then look at verse 23. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. This text, this passage, is really the story of victorious voices. 
of the victorious voices of the Jews. Their voices prevailed, and Luke is highlighting their voices as they scream, as they shout, as they cry out, as they bring out loud cries. But here in verse 18, what do they ask for? What do they demand? It says, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. They want to get rid of Jesus. And instead they want Barabbas to be released. Now as we learn from other Gospels, and again as that scribe so long ago added this into uh, Luke in that verse 17, is that the Jews have a custom in which a prisoner was released at the festival time. And Pilate enacts this. He... Uh, invokes this idea. He says, hey, wait a minute. The other gospels tell us that the idea originated with Pilate. And he says, listen, uh, we have this custom. You guys have this custom uh, to release a prisoner. Why don't I release Jesus to you? And they go, the crowd says, no, we want Barabbas instead. And it's here, folks, that we see, begin to see this irrationality of belief, of unbelief, rather. Irrationality of unbelief. Remember, what was the charge that the Jews brought Jesus before Pilate in the first place? That he was an insurrectionist, that he claimed to be king of the Jews, and therefore because of that claim, and because he uh, was uh, claiming to be a king, the Romans should put him to death because he's going to incite insurrection. He's seditious to the state. He's seditious to Rome. And yet, as we've seen, Jesus is completely innocent of all those charges. And yet, who is it that they decide to bring forward and they ask for instead of Jesus? An actual seditionist. An actual insurrectionist. I mean, you can't get more backwards than that. More inconsistent. Here they claim that Jesus should be put to death because he's an insurrectionist. And then they say, you need to release the the actual insurrectionist. And this just shows, friends, is a vivid example that unbelief is not logical or rational. Now, many times people will claim that they've studied the evidence and therefore they cannot believe in God or they can't believe in Christ or believe in the Bible, that they've followed the logic. But at the core of every instance of unbelief is not an intellectual problem, but a moral problem. People do not want to believe in God. They find their reasons to support their unbelief. And maybe you've run across this in talking to friends, co-workers, or, or family. When talking about Christ and you find that there's not, the, the, the logic doesn't all add up. And yet they're convinced of it. And it works for them. And that's what holds them there in their unbelief. A common example today of the inconsistency and the the irrational, irrationality of unbelief that we often see today is uh, where people claim that all truth is relative. Right? They'll make that claim. All truth is relative. Your truth is good for you. My truth is good for me. No one can actually make any sort of ultimate truth claim that is true for everyone. We all are just finding our own ways up the mountain and we just need to leave each other alone and, and so uh, there is no absolute truth. 
And yet, baked into this claim is an inherent contradiction. It is self-refuting. When they say that there is no absolute truth, they are making an absolute truth claim. They're saying that this is the way it is in this universe, is that there's no absolute truth, and this is true for everybody. And so, for us to say that Jesus is the only way to salvation, and that there is no absolute truth, one's not an absolute truth claim, the other one isn't. They are both absolute truth claims. They are both claiming to be truth for everybody at all times and all places. Unbelief is inherently self-contradictory. It's incoherent. And the reason is because it is rebellion against the living God. God is the one who spoke this universe into existence. He's the one who made all of us. And when we try to live lives separate from him, we have to turn things inside out to ignore him. To try to get around him. Unbelief claims that God doesn't exist, but then it demands absolute right and wrong exists. Unbelief claims that this world came into existence through random, unguided mutations, and yet there is no evidence that randomness produces order, that non-life produces life, that inanimate objects produce intelligence, and that nothing can produce everything that is. At the core of unbelief is a resistance to belief. In other words, mankind in his unbelieving state doesn't want the truth to be true. They don't want God. And this is what the Bible calls the depravity of man. We are all sinners by nature and our problem is not intellectual but moral. This is what the London preacher D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, no difficulty in believing the gospel is intellectual. It's always moral. I want you to see this briefly in Romans chapter 1. So turn to the right with me to Romans chapter 1. Paul makes this clear as he opens up his letter to the Romans about how all mankind is condemned under sin. He says our problem is not that we are lacking information. Our problem is we don't want God. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We'll stop right there. Paul makes it clear that he, God has made himself clear to all mankind and therefore there's something in their hearts that they know about God but they are choosing to, notice the words he uses, suppress the truth. They're trying to push it down, they're trying to ignore it, that it's there. And so we can look out at those who don't believe today. Many smart people, many kind people, 
At the core of all unbelief is a refusal to believe what God's Word says, to turn to Him. And in this is really says something about their view of God. A.W. Pink, theologian from the last century, said, Unbelief is far, far more entertaining than an erroneous conception of God's way of salvation. It is a species of hatred against Him. Unbelief is a species of hatred against God Himself. Unbelief is not something to meddle with and just... This is taking sides. And so let's flip back to Luke 23. And we're going to see this irrationality continue in the Jews' unbelief. Luke 20, or 23 rather, verse 20. It says, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. He's trying to persuade them. He tries to say, come on guys, don't, can't you let this guy go? And this time, they don't just say, away with the man. They now specify how they want Jesus executed. For the first time, they mention crucifixion. Crucify, crucify him. And you get, with the repeating of the verb there, you can picture the chanting. Crucify, 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 crucify. They wanted blood. Now we're going to go into more details in the weeks ahead about what Roman crucifixion entailed, but it was one of the most brutal and humiliating ways that people could die. The Romans had mastered the craft because they wanted to put criminals to death in such a way that other people would be dissuaded from rebelling against them. And so if people could see what would be done in a crucifixion, they would be uh, inclined to not carry on and to rebel against Rome. In the midst of these cries, these chants for crucifixion, Pilate tries one more time. Look at verse 22. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. He tries again to reason with them. And once again, Pilate speaks to Jesus' innocence. Luke wants us to pick this up that three times Luke, or uh, Pilate rather, has stated that Jesus is not guilty of the crimes brought before him. As Luke is recording this for the first century audience that would spread around all of the Gentile world, he wanted to be clear that Jesus, this man who was executed in, in Judea, in AD 33, was not guilty in any sense. In fact, it was so verified that even the Gentile rulers could see that he was innocent. And so he records here for the third time that Pilate states this. He proposes, as he said before, that I'll flog him, I'll, I'll beat him, I'll whip him and teach him a lesson, and that'll be sufficient, and then I'll release him. Of course, in light of what Pilate has just said, even this kind of punishment was unjust, wasn't it? Did Jesus deserve flogging for anything? Absolutely not. But verse 23, the Jews just yelled louder. It says they were urgent or insistent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. 
Their voices were victorious. They did a full court press onto Pilate. They yelled louder and louder. It must have felt like a mob was about to break out. And that pressure ultimately caused Pilate to cave. Once again, the crowd is not interested in truth or reason. They continued to press for what they wanted against all reason. There was not a shred of evidence. But did they care? No. Pilate doesn't understand. He goes, this doesn't make sense. This is against reason. Why would you even press for this? It didn't matter. They so hated Jesus that they didn't care about truth. And so they don't even really answer him. They just keep yelling louder for crucifixion. And it's in seeing this cemented unbelief, this hardened heart of the Jews that we're reminded that for any one of us to be saved, we must be rescued from the hardness of our own hearts. We must be rescued from unbelief ourselves. We cannot save ourselves out of unbelief. We need God to come and to rescue us. Otherwise, our hearts will be just as hard as the Jews on that day. And this is exactly what Jesus does for us in the gospel. He comes to rescue us as lost sheep. He softens hard hearts. He sets us free from the prison of unbelief. So church, as we see the hardness of heart of the the Jews on this day, let us not say, how dare they, how could they? Let us be reminded that but for the grace of God, there go we. That in order for the cross to be good news for us, we must recognize that it was our sin that put Christ upon the cross. We are just as guilty as the Jews because it is our sin that caused him to go there. Let's look now at the third character of our narrative. We've seen Jesus, the Jews. Let's look thirdly at Pilate. And as looking at Pilate, we learn that unbelief is popular. Unbelief is popular. Look at verse 24. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He finally caved. He finally capitulated to the demands of the Jews. Pilate here sought to release Jesus. You'll note in verse 20 how it says that he desired to release Jesus. He honestly wanted to see Jesus go free. And so this can cause us to be sympathetic to Pilate, right? Do you feel those feelings rise up? And you're like, man, he was trying. He wants to do the right thing. He was was the only one acting reasonably in light of the Jewish mob. But we begin to see some cracks in his conviction as we've already seen. He, even though Jesus was innocent, what did he propose to do to Jesus? Well, to flog him. That was not right. That was not just. And we see further weakness in verse 22. Where he is trying to reason with the mob. I mean, just even into that point, you realize this is a weak leader. He is, he is the Roman governor. He's supposed to, like, just make a decision. And all of the subjects are supposed to say, okay, that's the end of it. But Pilate, instead, is beginning to reason with them. Like some of us parents trying to reason with our children. We should just say the word and it's done. And instead, we start to barter with them. And then we snap at them and go, what are we doing? (laughs) We are the decision makers. Pilate here tries to reason with the mob. As a convictional leader, he should have stood his ground. But as soon as he sought to reason with these bloodthirsty men, he was doomed to lose. 
And so we then see in verse 24 his full capitulation. The voices of the mob prevailed, as verse 23 says, and then he decided that their demand should be granted. He made the decision. Pilate decided. It wouldn't happen without his decision, and yet Pilate made that move. He didn't have to go that way, but he did. I believe a lesson we can learn here from watching Pilate in this narrative is that unbelief is popular. The voice of the crowd is powerful. And it can easily sway us. But we must be on the lookout for unbelief in whatever form it comes. J.C. Ryle said, No sin makes less noise, but none so surely damns the soul as unbelief. It can slide in. We can begin to listen to the voices of unbelief that are all around us. Now, we don't have crowds around us crying for Jesus to be crucified as if on this day. But we do have crowds around us crying out for us to follow a different Savior, right? For us to go a different path. For us to no longer follow Christ, but follow the crowd. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 that it's it's the narrow way or it's the wide way. It's the narrow gate or the wide gate. There's two paths. The crowds are calling out for us all of the time. They're calling out for you. They're calling out for you to abandon Christ. They're calling out for you to live for yourself. They're calling out for you to get more money, more pleasure, more power. They're calling out to you to entertain yourself and numb your soul. The the crowds are calling out to you to give in to sin and to abandon Christ. Friends, we know there's massive pressure by the crowd of the world for us to follow the crowd. And we all feel it, young and old. But the exhortation to the young is, you're not as prepared for it. You haven't been living the, different, the years to feel it and to stand your ground. And so you can be more susceptible to the voice of the crowd. And so I encourage you, I warn you this morning, do not listen to the voice of the crowd. That could be a crowd at school, could be a crowd uh, on your sports team, it could be a crowd in, in even quote-unquote Christian friends that are seeking to pull you away from Christ. Do not listen to the voice of the crowd, even if unbelief is trendy and popular. The question before each and every one of us is who will you follow, Christ or the crowd? Christ or the crowd. We each need to make a choice. Pilate made his choice. You need to make your choice. Now on that day, Pilate didn't feel the consequences for choosing the crowd over Christ. But he had to reckon with that choice later. There was a reckoning that came. And the same is true for us today. You might choose the crowd today and it might feel fine. But friends, there is a reckoning coming for each and every one of us. The Bible is clear in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 that it's appointed unto man to die once and then comes judgment. And we all must reckon with that judgment day. The world tries to distract us from that, to think that to live for the here and now. That is a lie from Satan himself. He uses the crowd to draw people away. And so who will you listen to, Christ or the crowd? Who are you listening to today? Unbelief might seem like the popular thing, the cool thing, but in the end it kills. It will destine you to eternal death in hell 
Because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. But there's good news. And that good news is that there's hope. There's salvation in Jesus Christ. But this salvation is only possible if someone takes our place. And that leads us to the fourth and final character that we're going to meet this morning. And that is Barabbas. Barabbas. And in the character of Barabbas, we learn that salvation requires a substitute. Look at verse 25. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Pilate went forward. He gave in to the will of the people. He gave them whom they asked, Luke specifically notes. He gave them that he would be crucified. Now, the Jews themselves didn't perform the crucifixion. His soldiers would have done it, but it was all according to the will of the Jews. Now, by all accounts, Barabbas, we don't know if Barabbas ever repented of his sins and ever came to faith in Christ. He was a wicked man from the accounts that we have, but it is his part of the story here there's an illustration for us I think it's an illustration that we're not imposing on the text I think it's an illustration that Luke himself wants us to see that all the gospel writers wanted us to see and that is that Jesus Christ took the place of a guilty man a guilty man was set free and an innocent man was crucified and in that is an illustration of the gospel in that is an illustration of the atonement purchased through Christ. The salvation that we have, friends, is because of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. It means that Jesus was our substitute. He took our place. He was slain. And atonement was made by his blood. He is the propitiation for our sins. God's wrath was satisfied because of his sacrifice. And Barabbas, in that sense, is a stand-in for all of us who have placed our faith in Christ, that if we believe in Jesus, we get to go free. We get to be released. We don't have to pay for our sins because Jesus paid them for us. Jesus took our place. Romans 5, verse 6 says, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Two verses later, it says, for, but God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. In Christ, he took the wrath on our behalf. He died so you don't have to. He paid the penalty that you deserved. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And I ask you this morning, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus was the propitiation, the substitute for your sins? Do you believe that he took your place? That he took the punishment that you deserve? Can you look at the cross and say, yes, I deserve that punishment because of my sin. I'm not guilty. Because until you come to grips with how guilty you are, you're never going to be able to come to grips with how free you are in Christ. We've got to have the bad news before we have the good news. And if you've never come to grips with how bad you are on your own, then you will be lost in your sins. It is our sins that put Christ upon the cross, and yet it is our sins that were paid for upon the cross. And his sacrifice was sufficient. And so those of us in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. Romans 8.1. Christ is the remedy for our sin. But friends, a remedy is no good if you don't take it. 
If it's sitting there on the counter and you don't drink it, it's not going to heal you. And so we must, we can't just look upon Christ. We can't just hear of his sacrifice. We've got to believe in him ourselves. We have to embrace him ourselves. Something no one else can do for you, you must do it yourself. Placing your faith and believe that it was your sins that were paid for upon that cross. That he is your savior and that without him, you are damned forever. We must know that personally for ourselves in order for there to be salvation. And so take the destiny of your life, the destiny of your soul, and put it upon a person, a person who took your place, who was your substitute, and that is Christ. We must look upon him, and then we will live. Well, there's these several different characters that we've looked at this morning. Many different, varied lessons. But the point of all of them is that we need Jesus Christ, right? There is no other Savior. There is no other place for our souls to look. We must look to Christ. And I pray that it's true of you this morning. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that is here that Jesus Christ went to the cross on our behalf. That he experienced the wrath of God so that we might be brought to glory. So that we might be saved. And Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who are caught in the voice of the crowd, who are tempted and allured by the unbelief around them. Oh, Father, I pray that this morning that you would please break them free of that, that you would help them to hear the voice of Jesus calling to them and that they would not go a day more without bowing the knee before Christ, the crucified and risen Savior. Oh, Father, may we all have our faith in him. To you be the glory in Christ's name. Amen.